Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Professor Johan Wokström. He is the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and also a professor at the Institute for Earth and Environmental Science at Potsdam University. Brockström led the development of the new planetary boundaries framework for human development in the current era of rapid global change at the Stockholm Resilience Center. He is internationally known for his work on global sustainability with 25 years of experience in fields ranging from applied land and water management to global sustainability. Brockström provides scientific advice to various important organizations, such as the EU Commission, the Royal Swedish Academy of Science, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He is also in the advisory board of the EAT Foundation and European Investment Bank Advisory Group. Welcome, Johan. Let us start with a look into our planet's challenge of today. Let us imagine that we clean up transportation, produce electricity in a sustainable way, transform agriculture and develop methods for making cement and steel fossil free. We still don't match the needs. We still be trapped with billions of greenhouse gases every year. The author John Doan writes in his book, Speed and Scale, we still be left with about 10 billion tons of greenhouse gases every year. How do you see the pathway for the coming eight years to 2031? Mm. Yeah, thanks, and, and great to be with you. Well, to, to begin with, um, your introduction here emphasizes something which is scientifically well established, that there is no safe landing on climate. We cannot hold the planetary boundary on climate, the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit, only by decarbonizing the energy system. Um, actually, just transgressing the other planetary boundaries, in this case, predominantly because of unsustainable food production, can, can or will in its, on its own uh, crash through the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. So, so however we twist and turn this, the only way to have a safe landing on climate is to, to be able to be successful in transforming in an accelerated way, which scales globally on, on essentially all the planetary boundaries simultaneously. And it is actually a correct statement that even if we phase out all emission of greenhouse gases from coal, oil, and natural gas, we halt the expansion of agricultural land, but let's assume that we continue eating the the, the animal protein dominated diets that particularly the rich countries are doing and continue producing food in ways that releases nitrous oxide and, and methane, we would still remain with, with a significant residual of, of greenhouse gases. And, and it may be as much as 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent because we know that today of, of the total 55 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalents that we're emitting per year, 40 of those are carbon dioxide, but the remaining is actually methane and nitrous oxide, black carbon, and, and, and the other pollutants in air. So it's a, it's a really valid point that there is no, no delivery on the Paris Climate Agreement unless we can address essentially all the planetary boundaries at the same time. So, so that is, is really important. Does that mean that we are uh, kind of losing, losing the struggle? Well, I would say the answer is no, in, in the sense that we are definitely not delivering against the science on, on the phase out of greenhouse gases from fossil fuel emissions. But, but it's, it is so that we have solutions on all these fronts, that it's, it's not as if we have left uh, in a complete void how we can deal with all the other pressures on the planetary boundaries. We, we have quite a, quite a good roadmap on this. And, and nobody is suggesting, even if we, let's, let's assume that we um, succeed 
in, in doing what, what the planetary boundary science and what the climate science stipulates is necessary, namely to bend all the curves of global emissions, halting biodiversity loss, reducing nitrogen overloading, really getting rid of most of the uh, other greenhouse gases and air pollutants, then the charge is not to have reached zero by 2030 in eight years time. The charge is to cut emissions by half by 2030 and continue cutting by half until we reach zero by 2050. Now, so, so it's a, and that's already a massive challenge. I mean, it's an enormous challenge to, to cut global emissions by half by 2030. We have no indications of being successfully able to do so yet because we haven't even bent the curve, but that's the charge. When it comes to the other parts like halting expansion of land and reducing biodiversity loss and reducing pollutants and nutrient overloading, the charge is, is actually steeper in the sense that most science indicates that we need to halt now the expansion of agriculture. So, so the pace could uh, be, be required to go even faster. But I would, I would be quite careful in, in not giving the impression that, uh, that by 2030, if we haven't fulfilled exactly the return to the safe operating space that we then crash, that's not the case. Uh, what, what I try to emphasize is that for us to have an orderly landing, to have a, a transition which gives us you know, a possibility of having an economy that continues to develop, an equitable you know, distribution of resources, and an ability to transition into the new future, the new zero carbon sustainable future in a way that, that enables us to transition in, a, in an orderly, responsible way. And, and, and to do that, you need to bend the curves now, cut emissions by half by 2030, and continue following that path. Where do you see the hell and hope areas? And if you look at nations, or we look into the tropical rainforest Amazonian region? Well, I mean, if you look at start by by hell i mean it's it's a very uh, drastic uh, label but but of course what what worries me and many most is is the 150 plus coal fire plants well advanced in planning and many of them already in construction uh, led led from china which which will lock us into uh, to coal fire burning and coal fire generating of electricity and heat for for 20 30 years into the future which of course is a stranded asset if we follow science but will be an enormously difficult uh, thing to entangle disentangle um, in order to to really hold hold the climate uh, threshold so we have we have a few um, it's particularly india china indonesia australia canada to some extent, US, Russia, countries that, that have yet not pressed the stop button. They haven't, I mean, it's one thing to reduce emissions, but before that, you have to at least stop doing, stop investing in new expansion. And, and, and these are countries that continue to expand the wrong climate damaging energy sourcing. And, and the, the problem with that is double one that it has an immediate effect on the on, on climate risk but but predominantly is also that it it becomes a path dependence it becomes a self-fulfilling negative uh, journey because once you put the billions and billions behind that infrastructure it's very difficult to to shut them down so that is one hell the second one is that we are approaching the science shows quite clearly we are very close i mean closer than what is comfortable to, to tipping points in some of the big, big climate tipping element systems on planet Earth, meaning systems, big biophysical systems that we know scientifically contribute to stabilize the climate system, but push them too far, they cross tipping points and they can, they can become, um, you know, self-amplifying warming units on the planet. And, and, and what are the, the, let's say the ground zero there, or, or the, the, the real, you know, system that we that we are deeply concerned about they are four of them today and the number one is is the arctic and greenland 
here it's it's really really worrying because uh, ice melt is accelerating green on ice melt is slowing down the gulf stream and we are seeing also that it's uh, impacting the jet stream which is a significant reason why we see the heat waves in europe right now so you're sitting in london with uh, over 40 degrees celsius uh, there is a recent scientific paper coming led from the potsdam institute showing that the reason for that is global warming combined with the amplification because of the splitting up of the jet stream which is all relate to the to the exponential warming in the arctic Number two is the Amazon rainforest. I mean, this is the Earth's richest terrestrial ecosystem, which is home to the most biodiverse habitat we have on Earth, on land, but it's also a major carbon stock and a carbon sink. Science now shows that the Brazilian part of the Amazon has already tipped over from, from sink to source. It, if there's anything that can keep me awake at night, it's, it's that finding. It, it, is, it is very, very dangerous. And of course, the big fear, which many Brazilian scientists show, is that uh, push deforestation and global warming a bit further, just a bit further, and we risk crossing a tipping point, which would mean an irreversible loss of a rainforest into a savanna state because of forest fires and, and, and drought-induced, uh, you know, rapid, rapid degradation of the forest. So that's system number two. Number three is the West Antarctic ice shelf. You know, Antarctica, which we've always believed or until recently believed is much more stable than, than the Arctic, has proven to, to probably be more sensitive. And the reason for that is, of course, that, that Antarctica is ice on rock, while the Arctic is basically ice on sea. So Antarctica, while being at a lower temperature level, so it doesn't melt from above, actually it grows from above still because you get so much snow pack still that accumulates more ice, which by the way, climate skeptics love to use that East Antarctica is actually not melting, it's growing, which is a correct statement in some parts. But West Antarctica is, is, is accelerating its, uh, its ice loss because of the lubrication of warm waters in the Southern Ocean, which, which uh, you know, melts the ice from below and, and creates a kind of a sliding scheme on the rock between the rock and, and the ice interface. And, and this is what is causing the ice melt of the West Antarctic ice shelf. And, and finally, the fourth, uh, let's say, early, early warning catastrophe system are the tropical coral reef systems. I mean, here we have, uh, which is the only system actually of all the systems on Earth where we have a scientific uncertainty range which is very narrow meaning that we know with almost certainty that at 1.5 degrees celsius we've lost them and as you know 50 percent of the richest marine system on earth the great barrier reef outside of australia 50 percent has already crossed the tipping point and is permanently dead because of the bleaching frequent bleaching events so tropical coral reef systems west antarctic ice shelf the amazon rainforest and the Arctic, I would say these are the four ground zero systems approaching tipping points coming much too close and, and should be should be not only alarm bells, but but like, you know, the, 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 they should go uh, up and down around the clock with with a red flags saying the, these are these are enough to uh, they should be signals enough. For, for action. I mean, to, to really recognize that if this is happening at 1.2 degrees Celsius warming, you can just imagine what happens at 1.5 and you can barely conceive of what will happen at two degrees. So, so this is a very significant trajectory of science. You know, 10, 15 years back, we didn't have all this evidence and we could have discussions, you know, should we really, should we really aim at two degrees and, uh, is two degrees the right level? And the Paris Agreement, uh, or I say the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has put no definition quantitative on what is really dangerous climate change. After Paris Agreement and the signing of the Paris Agreement and actually putting on paper, staying well below two and aiming for 1.5, the science now shows that is a very, very wise decision. Not only that, 
1.5 is probably the planetary boundary. And we, we actually define the climate planetary boundary around 1.5, actually even a little bit below 1.5 already in 2009 at the first planetary boundary publication. We put the planetary boundary uh, at 1.3, 1.4 degrees Celsius warming. And we got quite a lot of critique, even, even from fellow scientists on that. But today it's proven to be correct. This is now unequivocally correct that, that the planet is more sensitive than we previously thought to high global mean temperature rise. When we go into the hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah, exactly. You had a double double question there. Yeah, what what's the what was the hope side? Well, there are a few very significant hope parts here. I mean, one of them is that uh, let, let's take the let's say the, the 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 least hope, but still it's in the in the positive side, which is that the European Union which is the only economic region in the world that shows climate leadership in the world today, but it is the largest economic region in the world. So we have the big three, the US, European Union and China, and Europe is the, is the largest unit, is starting to really get climate policy uh, biting in the way that, that science has always advised it to do. So with 100 euros of, per ton of carbon dioxide of price on carbon, with the climate, uh, you know, the, the legal climate framework and, and, and the pathway designed very carefully to have 55% reductions by 2030 and reach zero by, by 2045 to 2050. I think that is one positive side because when, when this uh, rich part of the world can show that that transition not only can be delivered upon, but also that it generates, it doesn't threaten economic development. It doesn't threat, on the contrary, it helps to get better outcomes of human well-being, health and security and competitiveness. I think this is, this is one, one light in the tunnel. The second one is that we have over 100 countries of the world's 195 countries that have committed to, to net zero pathways. Now, many of those are too slow. Uh, you know, China has a, has a net zero landing point 2060. India has a net zero landing point by 2070. It should be 2050. All that is correct, but it is transformative. Uh, the problem, of course, is that we don't see a delivery against those plans yet, but it's, it, is a, it is a recognition that we have one finite carbon budget and we have to stay within it. And I think that is um, also on the positive side. The most important positive side, though, is, is the trajectory we've seen very clearly from, from the Paris signing of the Paris Agreement in 2015, that, that the private sector in the world continues to be you know, one step ahead of the political game and, and is starting to change its, its attitude to the climate challenge and to sustainability very significantly. They are kind of shedding off this um, old uh, view of, of of positioning sustainability and climate as a corporate social responsibility or only as an ESG item producing sustainability reporting like once every year as a kind of a moral or ethical obligation to instead looking at sustainability as, as a competitive component of the business model to, to see it really as if you I mean I'll give you one example the, the automotive industry in Germany I mean the the powerhouse of, um, of, of the car industry in, in, in large parts of, uh, of this part of the, of the Northern Hemisphere is, is now on a race to electrify. And, and it's going so fast, not, if I may say so, not because uh, primarily the, the CEOs in, in Audi and Volkswagen and Mercedes uh, have, have decided to now save the planet, it's because they want to save their companies. And, um, and saving their companies can only be done by transforming along the sustainability pathway, because that is the way to take the car industry in the world to the next level of modernity and the next level of competitiveness. And, and I think, to me, that is, um, that, that is very pragmatic, of course. I mean, one should be able to solve the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis only on, on intrinsic values of just having moral 
obligations and awareness that that this is you know something that is unacceptable that we're doing because we're at risk of handing over to our children a less livable planet than the one that you and I were born on i mean that should be enough but but it isn't enough and it's certainly not enough if we want all businesses in the world all countries in the world the whole world economy to accelerate towards a sustainable future so i'm of the view that the only way to get the majorities on board is to go ultra pragmatic and the ultra pragmatic entry point today the light in the tunnel there is that sustainability is becoming the narrative of modernity of prosperity of success of competitiveness and and you can have many debates around that and of course there are problems with that as well because it's not obvious that that will trickle down in a, in, a, in a socially fair way to the most vulnerable and particularly not to those who are are, are, are hit by by un, unstoppable or, or irreversible climate impacts already today but still we need to cut those emissions by half in the next eight years and and I do not see any other way of doing it than than, than looking upon that shift in the whole sustainability narrative as, as one of the positive sides of the developments we're seeing. Do you see the capture and storage of carbon as a positive side? Well, 10 years back, my answer would have been, leave it aside. It can be an area of some scientific piloting, but let don't let that obscure the, the main job, which is phasing out coal, oil, and natural gas. There was, uh, at the time, a very you know, well-founded argument to say that, uh, particularly the US, were kind of showing a lot of enthusiasm over CCS, and it was, you know, suspected, I think on quite good grounds, that the reason for that was that that could be a nice fix to be able to stay on coal and oil much longer, uh, thanks to CCS. 10 years later, that has changed completely. Why? Well, obviously, because we're running out of carbon budget. We have lost 30 years of action. I mean, we could have started the phase out of coal or natural gas in 1990. Now we are in 2022. We have 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide remaining in a carbon budget that gives us a 50% chance of holding the 1.5 degrees Celsius line. We have more and more science showing that we have to hold it. That budget under current burning of fossil fuels will only take us another 10 years. So the drama is that we have no choice. Uh, CCS is, is, whether we like it or not, an absolute necessity. I mean, did you know that of the over 100, over 100 climate models that are behind the scenario analysis giving us the 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the remaining carbon budget, all of those models, not all, but essentially a vast majority, have already factored in a significant scaling of, of negative emissions, meaning CCS, BECS, direct air capture. So, so the only way we can science can give the world economy 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide in remaining allowed burning of fossil fuels is that the models assume scaling up to 10, between 5 and 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year of, of carbon dioxide uptake in CCS technologies in the second half of this century. So, so we have factored in the assumption that this will happen. And uh, I, my conclusion is that we have no choice. The drama is that we are supposed to uh, uh, you know, absorb or, or, or take up a billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. And so far, we've only taken up millions of tons. So we are, we are a factor, you know, we're basically a factor 1,000 below uh, what, where, we, where we're supposed to be. So we have to scale this very fast. And, and the big question is how to do that. Well, it isn't so difficult. That's a bit of the frustration, actually. We have the technologies. I mean, we know how to do CCS. The, the challenge is that it's too expensive. And the question is, is it really too expensive? And my argument is, no, it's not too expensive. It, it appears to be too expensive because we're subsidizing fossil fuel burning. Fossil fuel burning is subsidized in a, in a double fashion. 
One is that it's allowed to damage the atmosphere without paying for it. I mean, that's damage, that, that's subsidy number one. Subsidy number two is that half of the emissions are already absorbed in the ocean and in natural ecosystems without any compensation whatsoever. So that's subsidy number two. And then actually there is a subsidy number three, which is the, the direct subsidies from, from governments around the world to, to fossil fuel infrastructure and use of the order of five to 600 billion US dollars per year. So, so if we just corrected those uh, three market failures, took away subsidies, put the right price on carbon to factor in the fact that, that the planet is, 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 is absorbing and that we're damaging at zero cost, then CCS would be competitive already today. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's more an issue, again, of, of political leadership. You have been doing work for a long time with our planet boundaries. We have got reality lessons with a holistic perspective. Can you give the listener a view of how can we drive the change into this direction of thinking and how to transform it into policy and action? Mm. Well, of course, how, how to get this uh, in, into our, our, let's say, as a paradigm shift in our thinking and, and into operational policy remains a challenge but you know i would i would argue that there is essentially just just one fundamental factor here which is that the science the evidence is crystal clear we are deep into the anthropocene meaning that we've started the great acceleration in 1950s exponentially rising our pressures on planet earth we're hitting the ceiling of what the planet can cope with we're deep into the Anthropocene, that where we are the dominating force of change on planet Earth. We now have evidence that, you know, we as scientists can say without any hesitation, we are at risk of destabilizing the entire planet. We are at risk of handing over to future generations a, a less livable or less stable planet than the one we live on today. And, and moreover, we see the impacts already today of, of the impact so far, very, very significant. I mean, the heat waves we're experiencing and the forest fires and the water scarcity and the food prices and the inflation, which are related to climate impacts, land system change and water scarcity and biodiversity loss are very real and very costly and impact millions of people already today across the entire world. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, another one of these necessities to, to simply um, you know, reconnect our own world of development with, with the stability of planet Earth. That it's, a, it's, it's basically about, you know, in, in 1992 at the Rio conference with the, after the Brundtland Commission and the Agenda 21, we agreed on, on how we define sustainable development. And, and that has become established across the world. It was uh, decisions taken politically, it came from dialogues with civil society and science and, and business around the world, defining the three pillars of sustainable development, you know, the, the, the ecological, the social, and the economic. And, and it was largely about reducing environmental impacts, but had, had actually writings about the global stewardship as well. Today, we have scientific evidence, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, that 30 years later, that that was not enough. Today, we have to define sustainable development in the Anthropocene as having a world that can develop in a prosperous and equitable way within a resilient and stable Earth system. We've come to that point where we have no choice but to recognize the need to, to keep an eye on and, and actively secure the stability of the entire planet. Now, if you do that with the planetary boundary framework, or if you do that by observing all the 15 tipping element systems, or if you do that by uh, changing the global commons legal definition, there, there, there may be a mix of different approaches, but there's no doubt, there's actually no doubt that, that something of this kind is absolutely urgently needed for any nation or any community to have any chance 
of having a prosperous development in the future. And, and this, is, this is really the drama that in the pandemic, we, I think, I hope, <clears throat> we, we learned a globalization lesson that we are really living on, a, on an interconnected, intertwined, globalized world. When one thing goes wrong in one corner of the planet, in this case, a zoonotic viral spillover in Wuhan in China, a spillover from wildlife to humans, by the way, which is very likely a risk that increases very significantly because of transgressing the planetary boundary on biodiversity, but that's another story. But when something goes wrong in one corner of the planet, it can propel itself in, in accelerated fashion across the entire world and cause a pandemic. So it, it just sends its, its massive impact across the whole Earth system. Well, it's exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing with if we lose the Amazon rainforest. It's a Wuhan equivalent. Lose the Greenland ice sheet. It's a Wuhan equivalent. Lose the West Antarctic ice shelf. It's a Wuhan equivalent. Something goes wrong with one of the tipping element systems because we're pushing planetary boundaries too far in one corner of the planet, and that will propel itself with impacts on the entire world. So any community, any economy, any nation, any prime minister has a very strong interest to ensure that nobody destroys the tipping element systems, the, the systems that hold the planetary boundaries intact anywhere on the Earth system. So, so what I'm saying is, I live in Berlin, you are in London. Well, it's equally important for the two of us that uh, the West Antarctic ice shelf or the tropical coral reef systems or the Amazon rainforest or the Siberian tundra or the wetland systems uh, uh, across large parts of the temperate world are intact because they are not only providing a natural capital for the local communities, they're also providing a service to humanity. This makes them global commons. This makes them systems that need to be governed universally as a community for the entire world. I know yeah. that this is, this is very, very difficult, yeah. but, but, but that's where we are. And, yeah. and I think that, that new narrative is, is um, I mean, I, I cannot see any, any other way than just pushing forward those insights and just pushing that scientifically based messaging persistently and until until we hopefully get get some um, you know some traction so maybe uh, is it a, a problem of governance uh, the structure of, of government's uh, way of dealing with this type of issues uh, it could be also related to business way of, of how to integrate this uh, type of uh, uh, holistic perspective in their model of business or uh, government and, and also the reflection of the civil society, how they are mm. uh, acting. Uh, do you see that the, the, the government are really aware about to change uh, the way of, of thinking? No, they're not. I mean, this is um, a dilemma that um, our world well, to begin with, our world is configured under the assumption of, of incrementality and uh, that things are predictable and that, you know, th things should not happen abruptly. There should not be surprises and, and there should definitely not be something going wrong in a completely different corner of the planet hitting, hitting where I am on my, my side of the planet. So the pandemic is an example of, of something that is quite shocking. For, for the world community. And, and, and the same, same goes with, with climate change and, and, and the other impacts that we're seeing on, on planetary boundaries. So, so you're right that, that there is this, this inbuilt, in a, you know, we're incapable in, in the policy business and even in civil society to really see our interconnectors at the global level. The, the second problem is that we have configured our legal systems and our political systems and our economy according to nation states. So, so politicians, um, you know, they are, they are preoccupied first and foremost of what's happening within their borders. Now that doesn't work when you're trying to ensure that the planet does not cross tipping points. You need to recognize that you have to take equal responsibility for systems that are 
outside of the national borders, but even systems that are inside your own national borders, but which are systems that everyone depends on. So this is this is a legal challenge and, and an economic challenge of how to manage systems that, uh, that are, let's call them private property, but which are still providing a service to the entire of humanity. And, and, and this is something we're still lacking and, and it, it's very, very worrying. But third, what is, what is equally difficult in all this is that is, is the time the timeline. So not only are we in our economies and the political system unable to deal with um, challenges that are outside of nation states or, or challenges that kind of are regional global, also we're unable or very bad at dealing with challenges that, that, that become catastrophes 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line. If, if something doesn't go wrong immediately or within the next few years, it's like it's beyond the horizon. It's not factored in whatsoever. We even have economic discount rates, which, which paradoxically and, and completely, you know, it's completely bizarre that it means that investing in the future has no value today because basically discounting the future means that in the end, the, the present value of solving a problem today that will hit sometime in the future is not worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So we see this problem that even, even if the green ice sheet crosses a tipping point, it will take a few hundred years before you get seven meters sea level rise. Well, that's a complete disaster. And, and in geological time, or even in historic times, even in human historic time, that's a very short period. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by history and, and uh, I mean, what, what happened um, with the, the, the formation of uh, your and my um, home nation uh, in the 15th century and the Vikings in the 12th century and uh, looking back to the medieval times. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, you have religions, uh, most important books on earth are written on, on happenings on earth 2000 years ago. So it's not as if we're not able to, to recognize the value of, of what happened 2000 years ago for our current history, but we're unable, completely unable to recognize the value of the next 2000 years as if there is no, no coming for us on earth. Mm. And, and this is, uh, this, I think these are elements that we also need to address, uh, go beyond nation state and recognize that 100 years is a very short time period. And it's definitely a time period that I as a politician or as a business leader must take responsibility for, active responsibility for. This is something that is related also to how to mobilize people for talking to politicians who take decisions on policy and action. And we have seen a diversity of mobilizing action from everything from Greta Thunberg to Extinct Rebellion. We don't have time, expansional roadmap, Earth Day, Race to Zero campaigns, citizens' assemblies. It's, it's a mixture of different types of action to mobilize people. But can we do more to mobilize people? Yes, I think we can do more and we can do differently. And I think everything you counted listed here are, let's say in general initiatives that I very much admire and respect. And I think they're important and I think they should continue. But I'm increasingly convinced that on their own, they're actually uh, you know, not far away from counterproductive. Why? Well, it's because, you know, we face a planetary emergency. We need the whole world to transition in within a decade. We need, um, you know, everyone in society to step on board. And, and we know that, you know, the extinction rebellions and, uh, uh, you know, the, the environmental NGOs and uh, all the, uh, you know, let's say the frontier of environmentalism they are important because they are putting the flag up front. They are surfing furthest ahead, but they only engage maximum up to 20% of any population in any country. And, and that, those numbers are quite well established. Um, the country which comes highest is Germany. And, and as you know, we have uh, here in Germany, Die Grüne 
now running the country even, uh, being in coalition with, uh, with uh, Olaf Scholz's uh, SPD party. But, but that seems to be a glass ceiling. You know, it's, it's very difficult. In Sweden, it's never come above 15%. Like, it seems like 15 to 20% is, is, is a ceiling of, uh, of the proportion in any given society where you have populations really, really willing to, to step out of their comfort zone to act on, on the climate and sustainability crisis. The vast majority in societies the remaining 80%, they're, they're not skeptics. Uh, actually, we have a lot of statistics today, uh, many, many, many opinion polls showing that on average, something like 70%, 70% of any population, be it in China, India, Sweden, Germany, US, are, are deeply concerned about climate change. They want climate action and they, they trust the climate science. So there is something interesting happening here with the, with the vast majority. And, and, and in any given population, you have then up to 20% really, really engaged. In the other extreme end, you have a small, small proportion of very, very vocal skeptics and denialists. They are so few, so few that they can be completely discarded. So you can just leave them aside. There's no point in engaging with them even because they, they are just... Uh, questioning everything that has to do with, with truth and, and science. So you can just leave them apart. So the interesting part of any population is, is the big, vast, something like 70 to 80% of, of population, which I would call the indifferent masses. And they are indifferent, which makes them sound quite boring, but they are not boring. This is how people are most. They are having many preoccupations in life. They, they care a lot about the environment, but they also care about their children and they care about their economy and they care about their health and they care about their house mortgages and they care about many, many things, uh, their mother-in-laws and their grandmothers. And you know, there's a lot to care about in a life. So I think our task is to make it very easy for this vast majority who are ready to go, who wouldn't um, put, a, put on any big demonstrations or strikes to, to, to join any journey, if we can make it clear that stepping on board makes life easier. And, and how do you make life easier on the journey to net zero or the journey towards sustainable, healthy food? Well, to begin with, you make it cheaper. And that is very easy to do because you simply have to introduce uh, the, 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 the economic incentives like a price on carbon, which properly uh, rebalances the market failure that we have been living with for 150 years. But number two is you have to make things accessible. You may have to make it easy. I don't know if you've tried to drive an electric car through Sweden. It's, it's not easy. I can tell you. you, you're very happy when you cross the border to Norway and you drive the, 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 the latter half in, in Norway, the world's most advanced electric mobility country in, in the whole world. You have to make it easy, you have to make it cheaper, you have to show that, that the transition gives, gives multiple benefits. You become healthier, you have uh, more money in the pocket, it's cheaper, it's smarter, it's more attractive, your kids get more, more engaged. That's the way to succeed. And, and, and this again does not rule out the Fridays for Future demonstrations or the Extinction Rebellion or the, uh, you know, no growth or, or even degrowth community or the ecocide community. I mean, I love them all and I engage with many of them and I think they are fantastic. But we have to recognize that, that we are so far not getting the vast, vast majority on board. And, and I think um, we have to play this along a more multifaceted portfolio and I think the narrative the narrative should be not that we're saving the world the narrative should be we're creating the more modern attractive advanced prosperous future we, we are we are creating the, the you know where you want to be in the future you don't want to go backwards you want to go forward and if you want to go forward you go fossil fuel free and and I think that that is something that that we have failed with so far, 
uh, we're getting there. If you look at the, the role of science, can science do better to explain the complex communication on climate and planet boundaries? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, no, I would argue in the sense that there is this tendency. I don't know if you've seen um, the, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio Don't Look Up uh, uh, movie, yes. which has this, this classic moment in this television interview where where Leonardo DiCaprio is, is, is trying to, uh, you know, in, in frustrated make clear that an asteroid is about to catastrophically hit Earth and, and he's just laying out the science, the science he knows, the science he's an expert about. He knows about the, the astrophysics. And then the journalist asks, so what's the solution? And, 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 and he, of course, does not have the answer to that. Why, why should he have the answer to that? Uh, I mean, he, that, that's not his task to have the answer on that. And this happens all the time that uh, that I, as an Earth system scientist, are kind of asked to how, how do we solve the communication challenge here? I, I think I could argue you could argue that uh, well that that's that's not really my task. Um, I think what I should do is put forward the scientific evidence as as uh, comprehensively and understandably as I ever can. Then you have a lot of other scientists, you have social scientists, um, behavioral scientists who are studying uh, particularly how to communicate uh, science and how to communicate climate science. And, and, and that, that may be a source um, of some of the solutions here. But I, I think this is an, a very good example of, uh, of where we need to collaborate across disciplines and across, across different, you know, walks of life it's not only academics academics need to work together with people like yourself of how to how to translate the science into into messaging that can be understood and and taken on board by uh, by a by a broader broader majority is it any sort of recommendation to go to netflix to see the program with you yeah, well, I mean, the, the only reason why I accepted to, to do the Breaking Boundaries documentary at Netflix was exactly along these lines that after uh, 30 plus years of academic struggling in this area, I feel that uh, it has come to naught in the sense that it's very difficult to come across. This was a fantastic opportunity to experiment with a new way of communicating. I think that was one potential step in the right direction, but I think we are very far. I think that documentary is still a very far away from where we want to be. I mean, my, my dream would be uh, if someone would like to come forward and, uh, and, and create a, um, a uh, day after tomorrow 2.0, which is an action thriller based on science on the alternative futures of humanity on earth, where you could see uh, scenarios of uh, like uh, in the Inception movie with Leonardo Vinci walking through alternative realities where, where you compare a journey towards disaster, a business as usual journey towards disaster, towards pathways to a safe landing within planetary boundaries. And, and, and what are the differences in those two worlds? Uh, things like that. I, I, I agree with you that we need to experiment with new ways of, uh, of, um, of coming across with, with the science. But, but so far, I see very little of that. Let us uh, talk a little bit about the, the, the role of leadership in science. And I know that I have a lot of listeners uh, which are young and going into science. And uh, you, with so many years of experience of leadership in the typical role of, of climate and sustainability, uh, what is your experience? Of what sort of advice uh, can you give to the young generation who go to this area? For thinking of, uh, I was thinking of, of uh, Greta's generation, who are the listener in our program. Well, I mean, my, my, my first and foremost advice comes from the discussion or conversation we've had so far that if, if you want to be successful and if you want to have really inspiring 
uh, an inspiring role and an inspiring jobs in the future, uh, having a deep understanding of, uh, of, of the planet and sustainability across the fields, I think will be a tremendous uh, comparative advantage, either if you go into engineering or, or digital technologies, or if you become a doctor or, or bio, biologist or in whatever, whatever uh, you know, profession, I, I see uh, sustainability today as, as, a, as a huge uh, added advantage because we, we are moving in a direction where innovation and, and novelty will have to respect uh, some form of scientifically based boundaries on biodiversity, freshwater nutrients, pollutants, climate, biodiversity, and and this is, so I, I think that that's number one. It's 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 if you want to have uh, creative opportunities in the future, sustainability is the way to go. The second, I think, is uh, to um, just bolster some of the power that um, in in my whole career. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've, I've, I've said this a few times before. I mean, we, we have been, as I mentioned earlier, following the opinion polls over a long, long time from Yale University, particularly from my colleague, uh, Tony Lizarovitz at Yale University, who leads the opinion polls on, on climate attitudes, showing persistently that a vast majority of populations, both in the US and Europe, are, are deeply concerned about climate change and trust climate science. And, and along those those data, I've often asked myself, where are the young people? Why, why don't we see a reaction? How, how can young people not stand on the streets saying, dear adults, this is completely unacceptable. How can you, how can you when you have all the science and you have all the solutions, not deliver a stable climate system for your children? So in a way, when, when Greta started her Friday demonstrations outside the Swedish parliament in 2018. I mean, 2018, three years after Paris, that was like, wow, finally, you know, it was like, okay, now they are really rising. And this is, I would argue, I mean, I think nobody can prove it, but, but my hypothesis is, this is why it, it grew so fast, because it was mature, because the young people were primed up since many years and were so knowledgeable and were so clearly aware of the problems. So we should thank our school teachers around the world and we should thank a lot of parents around the world for, for having basically uh, helped establish this very high level of, uh, of understanding among the youth. And I'm so incredibly impressed today by our teenagers who are, you know, to begin with, I think, I think you and I, I could challenge you. I think you can never find a climate skeptic among the millennials. I, I don't think they exist. I mean, climate skeptics are predominantly men and they're predominantly retired. I mean, if you look at plus, plus 70 years old often, men, these are the denialists, the deep denialists. Among the youth, you don't find them. They have a very, very good understanding and, and, and my, message to young people would be remember that you are in that sense quite powerful because you generally know on average more than the adult generations you are the one sitting on um, key insights for the future and, and and you have the right because it's an intergenerational responsibility so so i would say it's 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 really of great, I mean, it's fully justified for, for the youth movement to, to be right at the center of, of the decision-making rooms to, to uh, uh, really, really, uh, you know, expect to be allowed to speak at the United Nations General Assembly, to give talks at the United Nations uh, climate uh, conventions, that th things, they, they should never back down. That's what I'm saying. And, and I think that is um, something that, that is really go, important. Going into politics? Well, <laughs> that is uh, a good question. Of course, it's, it's every individual has to take his or her decision. 
I'm of the view, but here I'm a quite a conservative, boring professor. I, I think finishing your school is uh, is a good investment for for all young people. So I wouldn't advise anyone to go into politics too early. But but definitely, I mean, I see all the Fridays for Future youth. I mean, the brilliance is extraordinary, but their but their societal engagement is just incredible. I mean. Uh, I, I must say that, again, I've never measured anything like this, but I think the, the, the average performance of, uh, of some of the Fridays for Future youth that I engage with is equal to or exceeds the, the knowledge, of, uh, even at ministerial level, in, in politics in, in, in some of the countries that I interact with. So, I mean, there's, um, there, there, there's a lot of talent, a lot of talent here. Let me give you a final outlook question uh, when we look into the coming autumn. And uh, what is in your agenda in front of uh, COP27 in Egypt? What's mm. the important issue? Yeah, there, there's a lot, lot in the making, actually. I mean, um, to begin with, I think it could be worth sharing that last week we submitted the third scientific update on the planetary boundary science. Uh, so let's see how how it survives the, the external peer review, uh, but, but I hope that that will be coming out in the next few months. We also submitted last week the first results from the Earth Commission. The Earth Commission is an initiative that I've taken, which is uh, set up together with Future Earth, but also the Global Commons Alliance on, on doing basically an IPCC for the whole planet, defining not only the safe boundaries for humanity, but also the just boundaries for humanity. So basically doing a donut economics assessment with, with an IPCC approach. And uh, we've submitted the first manuscripts for that, which of course should, should be, uh, let's say, hitting the public domain, hopefully in the next half year. Then we have the climate week at the United Nations General Assembly in September. We're hosting at that time, the first Global Futures Conference together with Arizona State University and something called the Earth League, a network that I'm chairing of leading Earth system scientific institutions around the world. And there we're going to work up something really challenging, but I think important, namely what we call the 10 must-haves, namely getting a scientific community and stakeholders from different sectors to try and identify what are the 10 things that must happen if we start coming too close to tipping points. What's, what's the plan B if we need to really start pulling the brake and, and introducing some, some rapid, rapid efforts of turnaround. So that will happen uh, in September. And at the same time, we're also having a meeting of something called the, the first um, economics commission on water. So, you know, Nick Stern had his uh, review on, on, on the economics of climate change. And then you have the Parthadas Gupta review on the economics of biodiversity. And now I'm co-chairing the third in that trilogy, the, the commission review on the economics of water. And, and this is exciting because it's done with uh, Mariana Mazzucati and uh, uh, Ngozi, the head of the, the World Trade Organization and, and, and Tarman, who is um, you know, the former, he is currently the kind of the, the second in, in command in the government in Singapore. So there's a lot happening there. Then you have, of course, um, the run up to, to G uh, to, to COP27. And then hopefully along those lines, also the COP15 on biodiversity in Kunming, which we don't know exactly when it will happen. So we're providing science into both of those. And um, so it's, uh, it continues to be, you know, a significant effort from science to inform um, all these, um, all these decisions um, in the near and the long term maybe also important in front of the eight year we have to 2030 to get yeah. something uh, like look like a tool for for change it was really a great pleasure to have you here as a guest in transformers Johan. and uh, i hope that you will have time for some time of summer holiday in front of this uh, autumn and uh, and uh, but i understand also it could be difficult not to think about our climate when we look at the weather system outside mm. our doors. But thank you very much, Johan. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month, and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.